Last year was a tumultuous one for many reasons, not the least of which was the long overdue attention that the Black Lives Matter movement garnered in response to systemic police brutality and abuse that was made ever more obvious by the egregious killings of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Philando Castile, and far too many more last year alone. This violence, of course, is nothing new, but the attention they received and the resulting record-breaking protests were. And it became more difficult than ever for the rest of the nation, white America in particular, to ignore it. So as a part of our response to last summer's racial justice movement, we here at Bossed Up put together our first-ever diversity, inclusion, and active anti-racism justice plan. We published it publicly, emailed all of our subscribers about it, and shared it on social media to solicit feedback. Today, I want to report back on what we've learned about active allyship and racial justice since then in the form of four specific key takeaways that I hope can inform any anti-racism efforts that you and your family or your place of work are pursuing as well. Lesson one, anti-racism starts in-house. February, of course, is Black History Month, which can invite a certain type of optical allyship that actually does more harm than good. Latham Thomas, author of Own Your Glow, coined the term optical allyship, which she defines as, quote, allyship that only serves at the surface level to platform the ally, end quote. She goes on to explain, quote, it makes a statement but doesn't go beneath the surface, and it's not aimed at breaking away from the systems of power that oppress. End quote. It's performative, superficial, and centers around the ally showing off how woke they are instead of actually getting to the heart of the matter. This can create a false sense of progress on the part of the ally who has, in fact, done nothing substantive to advance social justice. So to go beyond this superficiality, it's imperative that organizations and individuals start by first focusing their intention inwards. Here are two examples that have worked well for us. First, we instituted an internal anti-racism learning and development plan. This looks like quarterly self-education efforts that include reading books and articles, listening to podcasts, and watching documentaries, followed by thoughtful lunch and learn conversations to review what we each took away and how we may be able to apply those learnings to our work and our lives. If my scrappy little small business can do this, There's no excuse to not be doing this low-cost, incredibly educational work with your team. Second, we reassessed and adjusted our hiring policies. Systemic racism in hiring is a proven reality. So how does your company systematically combat this? That was the question we asked ourselves when assessing our own policies and found ourselves coming up short. In the world of small business especially, it's easy for hiring processes to lack structure and just lean towards the informal, but that's problematic for leveling the playing field. So we made a variety of adjustments, which I actually plan to explain and expand upon in greater detail in an upcoming podcast. But for now, I'll tell you this. We always include hitting a threshold of 25% people of color candidates in our application pool at every stage of the interview process. We also now use hiring rubrics that are tailored to the role to rate candidates throughout the interview process so that we're less reliant on subjective matters like perceived likability and culture fit, which can also leave candidates of color at a disadvantage. By 
starting with an internal audit and creating regular opportunities for analysis, improvement, and learning, our anti-racism efforts can focus less on optics and more on our own everyday business practices. Lesson number two, you've got to put your money where your mouth is. How do you quantify the debt that you owe communities of color? This was a really difficult but imperative question that we asked ourselves last year, especially as an organization so seeped in Black culture and history. After all, bossed up is a hip-hop term, and more on that in an upcoming podcast as well. As a for-profit entity that's profited in no small part thanks to Black culture, we knew that we had to do more than simply pay homage verbally and give credit where credit is due, which is important, of course. So we built in a new give-back strategy that directly ties into our business model. Now, to be completely honest, we're kind of a low-profit business right now, and surviving 2020 was miraculous in its own right, given the fact that at this time last year, 100% of our business operations hinged on in-person events. That said... I am a big believer that everyone can give at some level. So I started with a realistic commitment for our small and scrappy team, which is in a growth mode right now and frankly isn't that profitable. So 5% of our quarterly profits currently go to a charitable organization that's focused on communities of color each quarter as voted on by our most engaged community members in the Bossed Up Courage community on Facebook, if you know, you know. Now, knowing that not every quarter of our business is going to be profitable, because that's just what small business is like sometimes, I also committed us to a minimum donation of $100 for every quarter when we were in the negative. Uh, Three quarters into the program now, and we've already donated $478.23 to uh, organizations including Marsha P. Johnson, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute, the Therapy Fund for Black Women and Girls, and Girl Trek. And we are just getting started. I look forward to continuing to magnify our impact as our business and hopefully bottom line <laughs> continues to grow. Now, of course, giving back through business is just one way to systematically contribute. I encourage everyone, no matter your budget, to decide what you can afford to give and set up recurring monthly donations. I've had a lot of luck using actblue.com to fund a recurring monthly contribution from my personal budget to a combination of funds that are devoted to anti-racism action and recommend checking those options out on ActBlue or giving directly to an organization that really speaks to you. Lesson three, you are not going to get it right every time. Publishing our internal plans for active anti-racism meant being honest with our goals and our shortcomings with our community. Uh, Because the reality is, no one gets it right 100% of the time, but that cannot serve as an excuse for inaction. So to model that, I'd like to share two components of our plan that we simply haven't figured out yet. In other words, here's where we failed. The first has to do with our scholarship programs. We tried scholarship programs and failed. We are a business that is only sustainable because we charge market rate for our training programs and simultaneously give a ton of resources away for free, like our negotiation guide, our job search guide, this biweekly podcast, our public webinars, and so much more, which takes a lot of time, of course, and money to produce. 
but we don't make any money off of them. That's, you know, we are only able to make that happen because our programs make money. Like our paid programs are not cheap. So when we attempted to create scholarship programs, or we call them fellowship programs, for our paid services that were tailored specifically to include women of color, it kind of felt like an afterthought. It kind of was clunky. It was just tacked on to our existing business model. Which women of color should we waive the cost of our programs for? We had many women of color, and we have many women of color in our programs who pay full price. So how would we recruit women in need of financial support? What if those women who need financial support were not women of color? These are big ethical ambiguities that cropped up constantly as we were trying to sort of figure this out in the midst of our small business pivot as induced by this global pandemic, as we were rolling out new programs and offerings and trying to figure out how to just make ends meet. So we as a small business were simply not equipped to execute this program, this scholarship program, thoughtfully. I have to admit that. We, we didn't put the resources toward it that we needed to. So when we did deploy a nomination process to identify women of color in need, we had really low engagement. And then the women we did welcome into our program for free didn't really need or want it, right? They weren't like super bought in. So we know this because our participation from our fellows who joined at no cost dropped off significantly. So we're kind of back to square one on this front, if I'm being honest. We're exploring how we might partner with a more experienced nonprofit organization that has existing constituencies who need the kind of programs that we have to offer. Because nonprofit program management is not something we're experts in. Like we, I don't even know how to, how we would go about in a good way identifying the communities that we could serve best in this capacity. So we're currently really seeking out meaningful partnerships as a way to move forward. But TBD, I'll have to report back to you on this because we have very much not figured that out yet. The second area that we clearly failed in was the ambitious podcast guest of color quota that we set, which was 40%, and we failed to meet it. We had 58 guests on the podcast last year, which is kind of mind-blowing if I think about it. There's how it there's 52 weeks in the year. Some of our Thursday episodes were guest podcast takeovers. So we had 58 different guests on the podcast. 21 of them were people of color. And that is 36.2%. So did we come close? Yeah, we came close to 40. But we still failed to do what we aimed to do despite diligent and consistent efforts and thoughtfulness. So in light of our failure to reach this particular goal, which we tried very hard to reach, we've actually decided to lower our target slightly to 35%, which should be a no-brainer, right? This seems much more attainable and realistic, and I'm hoping that we'll knock it out of the park. We're checking in on this goal quarterly. We're hoping to hit or exceed it, especially considering that we have a lot of room to improve with our non-Black guests of color. The vast majority of our guests of color were Black, and we have a distinct lack of Latino and Asian guests on the show. So we're hoping to even expand beyond the 35% threshold by really doing more on solving for that particular blind spot this year while continuing, of course, to have lots of Black guests on the podcast as well. 
The final and fourth lesson we've learned about racial justice and active allyship in 2020 is to be grateful for feedback in any form. I was reminded as I spoke with Dr. Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility, on a podcast episode that's coming out next week, actually. Surprise, surprise. Uh, that as a white person, it's really important to remember that feedback on race and racism in any form is a gift. This can be super difficult, of course, to remember in real time when you're being called out for something, as it is perfectly natural to instinctively respond with defensiveness. But truly, folks of color do not owe white people the benefit of creating a teachable moment by providing feedback at all. Consider how risky it must feel to share feedback with someone who's perpetuating white supremacy or ignorance in some form, knowing how defensive and dramatic white fragility can be. So over the course of the last six or so months, as we at Bossed Up have become more vocal and public with our anti-racism efforts, it makes sense that we've received more email, comments, and DMs from our audience in response. No matter how stressful it can feel to be called out or called in, I've really tried to model gratitude in the face of feedback by chronicling all the feedback we've received on our anti-racism plan at the bottom of the plan itself, since that is the working document that the team and I use to review our progress quarterly. Feedback is documented, discussed, and more often than not acted upon in some way, or at least at the very least responded to. Uh, and I encourage any organization who's venturing into these waters publicly for the first time to be prepared and have a plan for what you will do with the feedback, good, bad, and everything in between, that you'll inevitably get in response. There has been a lot of learning and growth uh, as we have tried to walk the walk and really modeled in our tiny micro business here, which is growing, right? We just expanded with a new team member, Irene. So that makes four of us full time. Uh, you know, but I'm, I'm really trying to make our little corner of the internet and our business a place that doesn't just talk the talk, but really walks the walk. And I want to thank each and every one of you who have helped us be better. I think the theme of 2021 is to learn better, right? Know better and be better. And if you and your family or your team at work or your organization is looking for practical, you know, really actionable ways to check yourself and learn better so we can do better, I hope these four lessons that we learned over the course of 2020 uh, can help propel us all forward because we have more work to do. As the Obamas say all the time, I remember hearing that in the, on the campaign trail back in like 08 and 07. And you'll still still hear Barack Obama say that today. We have more work to do. This work is far from over. This is just the beginning. And so we need people to have resilience, have endurance, have tolerance to continue to dismantle white supremacy in every form. Uh, so thank you for listening. Thank you for your feedback in advance. And as the original motto that was set back in 1896 by the nation's first ever black women's club says, let's continue to lift as we climb.